My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are going to be continuing in our series we're calling Grace Wins. We're in week six now of this series where we have been swimming in the grace of God and all of what that means for us, this thing, grace, that the world we live in and all the people in it need more than anything else. And the thing that, as a church, we are most uniquely poised to give the greatest gift we have to offer the world and its people is grace, the grace that God has extended to us. And for the last four weeks, we've been immersed, really, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, someone who wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. And we have looked at some pretty epic passages about grace, some of Paul's most brilliant writing, as he has described the grace of God from the greatest cosmic level down to the personal level of our lives, from the the past, the present, and the future, the grace of God, the the incredible kindness that he's shown us, the favor that he has shown to people, the, the rich, undeserved, unearned love that he's shown us, the new life that he has made possible for us, and all that he did to move heaven and earth in order to make that new life possible and to bring us into it. Paul has articulated that. We've looked at his words uh, in some pretty brilliant and epic passages. And so we have seen Paul at his most articulate, his most brilliant. Today, I think we're going to see the Apostle Paul at his most vulnerable. He shares personally and honestly, deeply from his own life. We're going to be opening up to the book of 2 Corinthians, which is the second letter in the New Testament that Paul wrote to this church in the city of Corinth. And a little bit of the backdrop here. So Paul was the one who first brought the gospel, first brought the good news of God's grace to this city at Corinth who'd never heard it before. And he started the church there, and this church continued on, And Paul eventually moved on to other places, and after he did, some other kind of hot-shot leaders and teachers came along in the name of Jesus. They were known as super apostles, and they were really flashy, charismatic people, maybe a little bit better looking than Paul, maybe a little bit more articulate, more schooled, um, more charismatic. If there was social media back in those days, these super apostles would have been trending much more than Paul. They would have had lots of followers, lots of likes, and they were very self-promoting all about it, quick to draw attention to themselves, like, hey, look at our pedigree, look at our gifts, look at our brilliance, look at this or that in order to say, this is why you should follow us and listen to us. Paul, he's he's old news. He's yesterday's news. You don't have to really listen to him anymore. We're, We're the hot ticket in town right now. And the people in Corinth, which was a very cosmopolitan city, they were into the latest trends and and hottest things and ideas. And so they started to listen to this and and ask Paul, yeah, why why should we listen to you anymore? Like, what do you have? What have have you done lately? And so all throughout 1st and 2nd Corinthians, this is an underlying tension as Paul is trying not to play this game of self-promotion and match fire with fire, but at the same time trying to defend himself a little bit and his own kind of authority from God in their lives. It's a tough tension to walk, and, and he really kind of bears his soul to this church. Kind of says, well, this is who I am. Here I am. This is who God has made me, who God has called me to be. And he really puts himself out there for them in a vulnerable way. We're going to open up uh, in the midst of all this to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you've got a Bible on you, uh, or if you use the one in the pew, I believe it's on page 822 in most of the pew Bibles. So this argument's already been going on. Uh, in chapter 12, we're going to see Paul uh, take it a little bit further. A little more background here. So one of the ways that the super apostles would promote themselves was to point to 
really special spiritual experiences that they had had, like visions they'd seen, revelations, words from God that they heard that nobody else could hear. And, and they would use that to point to themselves and, and say, look how super spiritual we are. Like, we're extra close to God, so you, you really want to listen to us. Uh, and then Paul, in response, he's going to share very vulnerably here. He's going to share one of the greatest things that's ever happened to him, which is vulnerable in its own way. And then he's going to share one of the hardest things that's ever happened to him. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll read to verse 10. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say." To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So there's a lot in here. We're going to walk through Paul's journey with him a little bit, from the high and through the low, through the struggle. And a spoiler alert is that in the end, grace wins. But we'll start with these visions and revelations that he describes in the beginning of the passage. And I, I just want to clarify that Paul is talking about himself here. Even though he, he says, I know a man in Christ who saw this, and he refers to him in the third person, he, he is talking about himself. Now, why in the third person uh, is really an act of modesty and humility on his part. And kind of the Greek rhetoric that he was using that day to, to talk about it in the third person was a way of removing yourself from the event so that it becomes not about yourself. Paul is talking about this pretty reluctantly and trying to be as humble as he can. Whereas these super apostles would go around and blab about any spiritual experience that they may have had to try to draw attention to themselves, Paul doesn't seem to have told anybody about this or else they probably would have known. And he's sharing it now only as it is helpful and beneficial for the people he's writing to. But, but it's reluctant, and, and, he only, and he shares it as humbly as possible, not even saying I. He only says I when he talks about his weaknesses. So he tries to remove himself as much as he can from that. But he is talking about himself and, and doing so in, in the most humble way possible. I know a man who, who saw these things. Now that may be the least confusing thing about this passage. I don't know that he's talking in the third person. Then there's all this other stuff, in the body or out of the body. I'm not even going to try to explain that because Paul himself didn't seem to know. He goes out of his way to say, I don't know if I was in the body or out of, if this was an out-of-the-body experience. And then he talks about being caught up to the third heaven. What is that? Well, heaven is 
one of those things none of us has ever really fully seen. We can't fully describe. And there's been lots of ways that people have tried to kind of imagine it or, or picture it. And in the popular Jewish conception of Paul's day, there was kind of a first, second, third heaven. Third heaven being kind of the ultimate paradise, a place of just complete union with God and, and like ecstasy, as, kind of as, as good as it gets. Is there actually like a third heaven exactly? I don't know. Uh, the point here is not for Paul to give a blow-by-blow account of what he saw. He calls what he saw inexpressible, things that no man is permitted to tell. So he's not trying to just convey what he saw. What he's trying to convey is, what I did see was amazing. He calls it inexpressible. He says he was uh, caught up to paradise, and the things that he saw were exceedingly great. And he can't really fully describe them, nor is he meant to. But the point is that it was amazing what he saw. He had a spiritual experience that was far more profound, far more powerful, far more beautiful than anything any of us have ever seen before. That's the point. And so this is something that Paul could have boasted about if he wanted to. He could have played the game of the super apostles and said, oh, you know what? Y'all think you're close to God? Y'all think you've seen visions and revelations? Well, let me tell you, I have seen far more than you have. Uh, but he doesn't do that. He, he downplays it as much as he can. He shares it as humbly as he can, uh, and only as it's beneficial. Now, a lot of us have things that we could boast about if we wanted to. Perhaps spiritual experiences or things we've encountered in our walk with God or, or other things, just what we've accomplished, what we have, who we are, where we come from. A lot of things we could boast about if we wanted to, but in many cases, I think, as Paul says, it is of no value. There is nothing to be gained from boasting. Just because we can boast about something doesn't mean that we ought to or that it's beneficial to. Paul only seems to bring this up because it's beneficial to other people, because somehow it will help them to understand God better, and because at this point God is actually prompting him and urging him to share it. That's a good rule of thumb if there's something you want to boast about. Is it a good thing to do or not? Well, if God prompts you to share something and if it's beneficial for, for other people, for their good, for their betterment, for their lifting up. Otherwise, boasting is generally of little value. Uh, there's little to be gained from it. So Paul shares this as reluctantly, as humbly as he can, and really he shares about this experience to set up what comes next. He really wants to share about the next part, the struggle and, and all this stuff about the visions and the revelations, it just gives a context and a backdrop for what comes next. And that's why he shares it. And then he moves on to talk about the thorn in his flesh. It was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, what was that? What is the thorn in his flesh? There have been many theories about what this could have been. People have written extensively and passionately uh, to try to make a case for what was the thorn in Paul's flesh. Many different theories, and the truth is, we don't know. We really don't. We don't know for sure. Some have speculated that it was some kind of physical ailment, uh, a pain perhaps, or a, 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 some kind of limitation, something that, that was chronic, uh, something that, but actually in his body, an impairment or an ailment or a pain. A sickness, perhaps, that, that was debilitating and, and that didn't go away. Some have speculated that it was more on the emotional level or in his spiritual life, some kind of 
discouragement or depression that he, he couldn't shake or couldn't, couldn't get out of. Some have speculated it was some kind of uh, ongoing temptation, maybe a, a passion or a desire that he knew wasn't right and he, and he wished would go away, but it just kind of kept coming at him uh, and, and was always there to bother him. Some have speculated that it was some other people who were just a pain. You know anyone like that? Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the nearby enemies of the people of God were often referred to as a thorn in their side, uh, uh, people who were kind of constantly harassing them, causing them distress. So all of these theories it could be, but none of them are conclusive, none of them are definitive, and the point is we really don't know for sure. But here's a couple things we do know about the thorn that Paul experienced. It was persistent, and it was painful. It was persistent, and it was painful. It, it stuck with him. He, he carried it for a long time, and it didn't go away. It was persistent and ongoing in his life, and it hurt. It caused him real pain, real suffering. It was a painful thing. It was a struggle. It, it was not a pleasant thing for him. And it lasted a while. Now, I think the genius of the thorn being not clearly defined is that that's very inclusive. I think we can all find ourselves in this. Who among us has not experienced something in our life that was both persistent and painful? Persistently painful. If you haven't, stay tuned. But I suspect most of us have. Something that was ongoing that we wished would go away, but it didn't. Something that we'd hoped would change, but it didn't. And it, and it was painful, and it caused us suffering, and it caused us grief, it caused us hurt. Many of us have experienced things like that. It, it just does seem to be part of the life of walking with God. For some, maybe it is a physical ailment, an illness, an impairment, a pain, something we carry in our physical body that just doesn't stop. For some, maybe it is, it is in the emotional realm, just an inability to be happy, a, a, a besetting melancholy or depression, something like that. For some, maybe it is an ongoing temptation, kind of a, a passion that we just wish wasn't there, and it keeps coming at us, a desire for something we don't want when we know we shouldn't have, and it keeps coming at us. Maybe for some of us it is, it is something relational, or maybe all of the above, but uh, many, many of us, any of us who walk with Jesus for any length of time experience things that are persistent and painful. Now, all the things I mentioned, physical impairments, emotional distress, relational difficulties, temptations and passions, I want to be clear, all of these things are things that God can break off of people and does break off of people in an instant. Everything I've mentioned, I, I've seen God in my own life and in the lives of people I know bring instant deliverance and instant healing and powerful, radical transformation in a quick amount of time. But it doesn't always work that way. And then when it doesn't, and, and no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we pray, the, the thing doesn't change, the thing doesn't go away, we may start to wonder, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with God in this situation? But, but know this, it's actually the part of the life of anyone who walks with Jesus. Persistent painful things. And, and really, the greatest saints 
the greatest heroes of the faith of all time. Read any spiritual biography of, of someone who God moved in power and used their life powerfully in the world. They all got something that was persistent and painful in their life. It doesn't mean something's wrong with your spiritual life. It actually, I think, is a sign uh, of, of a deep life with Jesus. But this thing is persistent and it's painful for Paul and... Um, it's, it's confusing, really, and it is confusing in, in life when, when we wish something would change, we wish something would go away, and it just doesn't. We wonder what's going on, and, it, and it's not all that clear all of what's going on for Paul here. It's hard for him to see. He, he does allude to the fact that both God and Satan have a role in this, and that's a tough thing to wrap our minds around. He does say, it was given to me, which implies it was given by God. He says, it was a messenger of Satan, and he's asking God to take it away, like God has the power to do that. So there's some interplay here between the work of God and the work of Satan, and it's not all that neatly resolved for us, which is common in Scripture, actually, to attest to the work of God and the work of evil. Happening side by side or even in tandem sometimes, and, it, and it's not always tied up in a pretty bow for us to understand exactly how that works, but Scripture seems to be very comfortable with that tension, and living in that tension and sitting in that tension invites us to do that too and not try to figure it all out from our own limited perspective. But God and Satan both have a, a role in here somehow. Uh, it reminds me of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament uh, who was a hero of the faith. He was horribly mistreated, wickedly treated by his brothers who sold him into slavery. It was a, a horrible thing to do. In the end, God worked through that and used that very thing actually to further his purposes in the world and to do something amazing. And at the end of the story, Joseph, he says to his brothers in Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So God was working for good even in this horrible thing, but just because he was working for good doesn't mean that what Joseph's brothers did was good. It was still a wicked, evil thing to sell him into slavery. But that didn't negate the power of God in the situation to, to work powerfully for good. But the ultimate example, really, is Jesus being put to death on the cross, which, Scripture, again, is clear. This was a wicked act. It was an unjust trial. He was an innocent man, brutally tortured and put to death by wicked people who were actively resisting God. And yet, this was like the thing. This was God's good purpose for all of us, was that Jesus die this way. Now, and the scripture doesn't really just, again, neatly resolve that for us, how that all works together, but just that there was evil at play and that God was at work for good, and it lets us kind of sit in that tension. And that's what's happening for Paul here, too. Uh, this thorn is not a good thing. Satan is not, is not good here. And just because Paul comes to believe that God was good in it, he doesn't call the thorn good. He hates it. And just because God is working powerfully and meeting you in the midst of something evil, uh, or something wicked, that doesn't mean that the thing becomes good. It, it's evil. It's wicked. But God is also at work too. But Paul hates this thorn. He can't stand it. And so we see him pray to God to take it away, to get rid of this thing. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. In the face of this persistent and painful thing in his life, Paul prays in a way that is persistent and passionate. He prays persistently and passionate in the face of this pain. 
This is not, he didn't just pray once, oh God, would you take this away? It didn't happen. Oh, I guess God doesn't want to do that, so I'll, I'll move on. No, I mean, he, he keeps at it. I'm going to pray again, and I'm going to come back at you, God. I'm going to ask you again, because this is really painful. And he earnestly pleads with God to do this thing. This is not some passive, wimpy prayer like, oh, God, you know, I hate to bother you, but if it's your will and you could remove this thorn from my life, like, that would be really great, but don't, don't worry about it uh, if it's your will. Uh, I mean, this, is, this is kind of a begging, this is earnestly pleading like, God, this hurts. I don't like this. This stinks. Please take it away. I don't know if I can take this anymore. I don't know if I can handle it. I want this to change. I want you to do something. Would you please do something to change this, to take this away? I'm not okay right now. Believe me when I tell you that in my own life, I have prayed these and far less refined prayers than these in the face of persistent pain. And believe me when I tell you that God can handle it. God can absolutely handle it. This is not a call to passive detachment, to just try to achieve some kind of serenity, some detachment, just recite over, oh, God is good, God is good, God, this is okay. That's not what Paul is doing here. After 16 years of marriage, my wife Liz has learned to not really believe me when I say the words, it's fine. (laughs) She's come to understand that I rarely actually mean that. And when I say, oh, it's fine, usually it's not fine. There's something else going on, and, and she digs a little deeper. Now, we can easily do that in our walk with God, too, when things are hard, when things are painful, to just kind of say, oh, it's fine. God is good. I'm sure it's fine. God knows what he's doing. But when we're really not fine, don't do that. Bring it to God. You can pray passionately. You can pray persistently. We just sang, if you've got pain, he's a pain taker. But we've got to bring that pain to him so he'll take it away. He's not going to reach in and grab and force it out of us. Come to him with it. There's an invitation here. That's what Paul did. Paul didn't just passively try to detach from the situation and convince himself that God was good. He brought it to God and then let God speak into it. You can bring your pain, you can bring your persistent pain before him. You can pray with passion and with persistence. And Paul does that. He acknowledges, this thing hurts, I don't like it, I want it to change. And he brings all of that to God. And then he actually, he doesn't get the thing that he asked for. But Paul's prayer is, is profoundly answered. This is not unanswered prayer. Many times when we ask God for something, we ask God to do something, and it doesn't happen that way, we call that unanswered prayer. But let's be careful about that. This is not unanswered prayer for Paul. He doesn't get the thing that he's asking for, but that's a, that's a different thing. And sometimes we ask God for something, he doesn't give us what we ask for, he doesn't do what we think he ought to do from our limited perspective, but that does not mean it's unanswered prayer. I'm actually not sure there is such a thing as unanswered prayer, of a prayer that we would pray that God would just be completely deaf to or passively indifferent to and and just completely unresponsive. I don't think such a thing exists. Now, sometimes God's answer is no. Sometimes God's answer is wait. Sometimes God's answer is I know you don't see it now, but I've actually got something much better in mind that you don't understand. But I'm not sure there's ever such a thing as an unanswered prayer. 
even if we don't get what we want. And Paul's prayer, though he does not get the thorn removed, is profoundly answered. I mean, he gets a word from Jesus to him that's recorded here for us, that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's not at all unresponsive or unanswering him. He answers with a direct word from his mouth to Paul's heart and mind in the midst of the most painful situation that he's been through. That's a profound answer. And somehow it seems to be enough. Even though the circumstance doesn't change, Paul comes away from this totally changed in how he sees it. This word from God is enough. And Paul seems to really believe what Jesus is saying here. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul comes away really believing this so that he ends up boasting and delighting in the hard circumstances and the weaknesses that he experiences in life because he realizes, oh my gosh, God's grace is here. God's power is here. I actually get God's power now in a way that I didn't get before. He's thrilled. He's convinced that God's grace really is sufficient for him. Even when everything else is going bad, even when nothing goes the way that he wants it to, even when there's nothing else that he's got to lean on, the grace of God, the God's goodwill towards him, God's favor towards him, God's predisposition of kindness towards him, God's mercy and forgiveness and grace towards him, his love for him, that's enough, even when nothing else is going right. God's grace is sufficient. And Paul doesn't come away drooping like, well, I guess I'll have to settle for grace. <laughs> He's not like a kid on Christmas morning who's disappointed and says, well, yeah, I asked for this, but you gave me socks, grace. <laughs> okay. No, he, he really believes this now, that even if grace was the only thing he had in that situation, that was good enough. That grace was here, not just another nice thing to add to his collection of other nice things. Grace was the only thing going for him now, and that was enough. And there are times when grace really is all that we've got. Nothing else seems to be going right. Nothing turns around when we're asking it to turn around. But we've got the kindness of God towards us, the favor that God shows us, his presence with us in it. And God wants us to know that actually that's enough. That is actually all that we need, and it is good. So Paul comes away convinced of that, and at the end of the day, that's what he wants us to know about. That's what he wants to tell about is the grace of God in his life. At the end of the day, Paul's story is defined by grace. Paul's story is not defined by his greatest achievements or by his greatest struggles, but by God's grace in his life. He doesn't come away saying, hey, look at me. Look at the spiritual experiences I've had. Look at how awesome I am. Look at all the great things that I've accomplished, that I've been through. He wants us to know that it's God's grace in his life that defines him. And he doesn't come away with this struggle defining him either. Like, oh, man, it was so hard. And I carry this thorn around, and I've asked God to take it away, but it's just, you know, it's just so hard. He wants you to know that God met him in the midst of that that God's grace was sufficient for him in the midst of that. He wants grace to be the hero of his story. The highs and the lows, those are supporting actors, supporting characters, but the hero of his story is grace, and that's what he wants to tell about. That's what he wants us to know. God's grace is with him in his hardest season, 
and that that was good enough. And he probably didn't even realize how good God's grace was until he went through that. And sometimes it's like that in our lives. It's hard to fully appreciate the sufficiency and the awesomeness of grace until it really is everything that we've got to lean on and we realize that God is still there, God is still good, and his grace is still amazing. So this is Paul's story, a story in which grace wins. And God wants grace to win in each and every one of our stories as well. In our stories, God does not want them to be defined by our greatest successes, by our greatest achievements, but by, or by our greatest struggles, but only by his grace in our lives. Again, our struggles, our achievements, they're supporting actors in the story, but grace is meant to be the hero. And I'm telling you, people will try to define you by one or the other of these things. People will try to perhaps flatter you, say, oh, you really are somebody, and you really are amazing because of this or that about you, maybe because of how you look or what you have or where you're from or uh, anything about you, like to, to build you up. That's what makes you somebody. Well, that's not true. And other people will try to define you by the other, like, oh, you could never really be somebody or fully somebody because of this or that, because of how you look or where you're from or what you don't have or the mistakes that you've made in the past. Those will always keep you from being somebody, but you can't be defined by either of those things. God wants to define you by his grace alone. And we can try to define ourselves by these things too, to point to our achievements, to point to our accomplishments, to point to our our good deeds at church, or to point to our intellect or our pedigree or something like that to define who we are. Or we can try to wow people with our struggles, how hard it's been, what we've been through. But when we tell the story of our lives, God wants to wow people with his grace. He doesn't want to wow people with how awesome we are. And he doesn't want to wow people with how hard it's been. He wants to wow people with the kindness and the favor and the mercy and the goodness that he has shown us. That's what he wants to define our story. Is that what you want to define your story? Is that the story you tell? Is that what people come away marveling at when they get to know you? Like, wow, there's a God who's really kind and gracious because he's been really kind and gracious to you. Or are they in awe of your struggles or your accomplishments? Let them be in awe of grace. As a matter of fact, when I die, I don't know who of you will still be around or will care, but if you are, you talk about my life in any way, I am begging you right now to please, more than anything else, talk about God's grace. I used to want you to talk about my achievements, or my struggles, and I still do sometimes. But more and more, the longer I walk with Jesus, I know that my life, over and above anything else, and really exclusively is a story of God being good to me, gracious towards me, kind towards me in ways I could never earn on my own, and making possible a life for me that I could never achieve on my own. That is the story of my life, and that is the story that God wants to write in your life, a story of his kind, gracious favor towards you to bring you out of out of yourself to bring you into a life you could never achieve or earn on your own. Grace is to be the hero of your story. I'm praying that grace will win in our story as a church and in each life here. For some of us, that may come through a humbling process, actually. 
that God will want to take our eyes off of ourselves and onto his grace. For some of us, that may mean, though, that God, God really needs to meet us in the midst of something really hard and really persistently painful. And I know he wants to do that. And if you're in the midst of that now and you're wondering where God is, I'll be praying for you that he'll show you his grace really is sufficient, that you'll come to know his power in the midst of your greatest weakness because it is there, he is there. His kindness for you is there, his favor towards you is there. He wants to show it to you and it, and it will prove to be enough. Let's pray.